Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Curator's Choice. This is your host, Ayla Anderson, and today we're going to be back in Nevada and at the National Automobile Museum, which is a fantastic museum. Their displays are spectacular, and they have so many really cool cars in their collection. Obviously, we have to narrow it down to just two main items. So we have the 1906 Adams Farwell, which is the only one of its kind that is still known to exist in the world. And the reason why it is so interesting was the way that they created the motor. So, or the engine, I should say. Clearly, I am not a car aficionado and I am not super savvy with the lingo. However, it's a vehicle where the engine spins around instead of parts of the inside of the engine spinning. All right, I'm not doing a great job describing it. You'll just have to listen in to the actual professional, but it's a really cool piece. And then you can tell in the episode, I was so not expecting this second item. I am embarrassingly excited during the interview, but we talk about the 1907 Thomas Model 35 Flyer. So this was an incredible little piece of machinery that went on the most fantastic journey that probably any vehicle, in my personal opinion, has gone on before. So it was the New York to Paris automobile race in 1908, and the Thomas Flyer was one of the six automobiles that was entered into this race. And the whole purpose of this race was it was sponsored by Times Square New York in New York, and it was also some other uh, France newspaper. I can't say the word. You'll hear it in the podcast episode. But it was this race that was sponsored by these newspapers to try to boost their newspaper sales. And the trip went all the way around the world. It was over 13,000 miles. And it started in New York City in Times Square. Then it went to Albany, across all of New York to Buffalo. Then it went around the Great Lakes to Chicago. And then it followed um, through the United States following the Transcontinental Railroad to San Francisco. Then they took a boat to Japan and then a ship to Siberia. And then they followed the Trans-Siberian Railway and eventually made it back to Paris. And it was a race with all six of these cars. I'm not going to spoil it to show you who wins, but this car is a major player in it. And the story is really remarkable how much work they had to do to keep it running and all the little tidbits. Um, So it was very, very exciting to hear about this race. I had never heard about it before. And another fun thing, a part of this episode, was my grandma was actually with me in the recording studio at the museum. So I got to take her on a visit, and we walked around, and you can actually hear her in the background a few times making little comments, especially when um, Ray is talking about there not being any AC in the old days, and you can just hear her be like, oh yeah, with her arms crossed, like shaking her head in the corner. So it was really awesome to share this experience with her and have her be a part of it. So you'll get to hear a little bit from her in the episode as well. And I took some awesome photos of the museum and of the pieces that we're going to be talking about. And I'll share them on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always go check out the blog post that I do for each episode at curatorschoicepodcast.com. And later today, I'll have the episode page ready for this one with all of the cool pictures and and extra fun information, some links to different things in the episode as well. So thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoy. I'm Jay Hubbard. Jay Hubbard. Jay Hubbard. I'm the collections manager here at the National Automobile Museum, the Hera Collection here in Reno, Nevada. And I'm actually a Rena Knight myself. I graduated from the college here and I've been Mm. to this museum a few times. Thank you. And I was really excited to come back because I loved the way that you guys do all of your displays. Thank you. So I'm really excited to have you guys on my podcast. And I have my grandmother here with me as well. Mm -hmm. So she's gonna be she's gonna be hanging in. I'm embarrassing her right now, but I'm excited she's here. Turn all the cameras on her, yeah. That's right. Take some pictures, post them on the podcast. Sounds good. (laughs) But um, yeah, I really wanted to come in and kind of talk about there's a pretty decent history, especially with Mr. Hera, mm-hmm. about this museum, how it got its start, and then we have some really cool items to talk about. Okay. So why don't you talk a little bit about you and your role here, and then we can kind of go into the crazy story that is 
Well, personally, uh, I've been playing with old cars, you know, since I was a teenager. And at that time, we were pulling, you know, 1950s cars off the streets. They were only 20 years old. And, and so we could find lots of interesting machines, you know, parked on the side of the road or next to a house or something along that line. And I was driving 50s Packards in high school and uh, went on from there. And I've, I've, I've got, still got some of those cars, you know, stashed away, uh, for better or worse. Um, I always, I've just always been fascinated by old machines. If it burns fuel and makes noise, I'm, I'm there to see what it's all about, you know. <laughs> I can't afford airplanes, and boats are expensive too, so I play with cars. There's not much water here. Yeah, so. <laughs> well, we got a beautiful lake just up the road here, about 45 minutes. You know, it's through Tahoe. It's a great place if you want to take a wooden boat. Um, unfortunately, you know, you know, I'd say about boats being holes in water you throw money into. I got mostly into antique cars because they're, they're, they're always available, you know, as far as that. You know, they're just there in the garage. You know, you want to go play with your car, you don't have to haul it to the lake, you don't have to take it, go to the airport anything foolish like that. And when the car's right there, you take it out and go around the block. And I used them for general transportation. Like I say, they were only 20 years old, so I'd be the same now as, say, driving a 2000, a year 2000 automobile on the streets today. Uh, driving a middle 1950s Packard or Studebaker was no more unusual. Um, when I was in high school, kids were still driving, you know, mom and dad's used Studebaker. They weren't even 10 years old yet, you know, for the last year productions. So, uh, those things have gotten a lot rarer on the road anymore, you know, due to, well, people worry about driving them all, though. Personally, I've driven uh, 53 Caribbean, I have, cross-country three times. Oh, wow. You know, under its own power. And, uh, you know, I used to, I knew a fellow in Colorado who drove to all the Packard, Packard Auto Classics national meets in a Packard of some sort or another uh, until he was no longer able to drive. Mm. So it's... They can be driven. Old cars. Uh, there's a young man here in town that drives drives a Model T quite regularly. Uh, usually comes by the museum in the car. Um, so it's there. You know, it's just a matter of what you're used to. Uh, most people are afraid of old cars. I don't feel you can't get parts. Nobody knows how to work on them. That sort of stuff. And to an extent, some of that's true. Uh, depending on what sort of automobile you're playing with. Parts can be difficult or easy to get, more or less. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things here I have to have stuff manufactured for. But there's a lot of better machining practices and equipment available now than, say, when Mr. Harrow was doing the restoration on some of these machines. And I can send an obscure piece out, and they can have it, you know, computer scanned, or laser, excuse me, laser scanned, and computer drafted, and punched out in a machine, and make plastic prototypes, and then turn those prototypes into metal. And you have a working part. In many cases, better than what was on the machine originally. Um, practices up where, you know, we can talk now up to 100 years ago, 1920s automobiles practice, machining practices and materials, so much better than they were then. And it's just the evolution of the product. So it's, it's practical or possible, let me say it that way, to get an antique automobile that will function as well as a new car as long as you can do away with such frills and extras as the air conditioning and stereo systems and stuff like that. Um, All right, now we're steering away from a little bit of it. I don't know if I can handle it. It's it's all a matter of what you're used to. I know you're a young person. You're used to all these... No, I have to crank the window. Yeah, you have to what crank the window. Yeah. <laughs> what is this spinny thing here on the side? What does it mean to roll down yeah. a window? Yeah, you know, my parents, uh, we didn't have an air conditioned car until the 1970s, you know, so yes. it was a terrible expensive option. So, you know, they say you just, yeah, well, you know, white wall tires, you know, I'm not going to spend an extra five bucks a tire, you know, things like that. Yeah. You know, I can remember my father, you know, driving around the block because gasoline over there was 25 cents a gallon, you know. He wasn't going to pay 27 so you know, little <laughs> things like that. Um, it's, it's a matter of what you're used to. Now yeah. we are, you know, you've got to have, you know, I say heating, air conditioning, not only AM, FM radio, but, you know, Bluetooth. And, and Sirius and it's all you know, Sirius, it's, you know, I've got a radio on my truck. There's more computer power in my Dodge out there than, I think, what put man on the moon, I'm told. So, <laughs> Probably. You know, miles and miles of wiring and stuff like that. So you've had this pretty much lifelong passion of working with these older cars. And yeah. then my mm -hmm. grandma was asking earlier, you've been working here for almost 16 years mm -hmm. at the museum itself. Right. What do you do here? I keep running, basically, I, you know, amongst other things. You know, we are a small crew, so we fill in wherever we need to as far as what, what has to be done around here. But primarily my function is to maintain and care for the collection. Um, you know, we're 
cleaning, you know, make, prepping a car right now to go to a Concours in Florida. Uh, they prefer that the machines be drivable when they get there. It's part of the pageantry. So it's nice to have the automobiles functional. And, um, you know, there's certain issues we got to go through. When I put one down in the museum, of course, the gasoline all has to go. And, and there's lots of reasons for that. I mean, not just fire, but modern fuel tends to desiccate and leave, leave behind all sorts of nasty critters uh, when it dries out. And all these things would have to be cleaned out. So it's better to clean them when I bring them in and uh, clean out the fuel systems. I drain the cooling systems and treat the, the inside of the blocks and things like that so to eliminate uh, corrosion issues and that sort of thing. Um, even old oils, uh, lubricants, can be a problem you know, past a certain point. Modern, there again, modern materials um, can be a blessing in some areas and a curse in others. And um, I've had older oils and stuff like that go completely asphalt on me. Uh, machine that hasn't, you know, finding that rare barn find untouched from the 1950 machine is a whole different nightmare than something that was worked with in the 70s, 80s, something along that line. Yeah. Um, so a lot of cleaning, a lot of issues like that. So bringing one out of the collection from display to prepare it for show, um, there's a lot of cleaning, a lot of, you know, inside and out mechanically and, and cosmetically. Um, replenishing fluids and that sort of thing, checking all the systems. You know, we want proper functioning brakes and things like that. Hydraulic brakes on modern cars can be a problem. Mechanical brakes on older cars are usually pretty good, you know, so it kind of depends on what I'm pulling out. I'm working on a, a 1937 Hispano Suiza. At present, that's a car that was built in French, uh, excuse me, built in France, uh, right around Paris, uh, by a company that was headquartered in Spain and populated by a Swiss engineer. Um, you know, so a very confused history, but uh, it's a lovely machine, big 12-cylinder monster, and um, it, you know, we're going through all the little you know, components on it to make sure it operates relatively nicely, you know, you know good, safely, and, and sort of safe for the machine, safe for the people around it, and so that people can get a feel of what this sort of machine was like in its time. And most of the people who work here, this is really a, it's a volunteer, isn't it a 501C? It's, it's oh, a yeah. completely volunteer organization you guys have well, here. Well, not completely. I mean, some of us do have to eat and pay rent. Ah, so, well, well, you know. I feel like you're asking a little <laughs> much. <laughs> I, I do, as, as one, one of my volunteer puts it, I, I do populate a, an adult daycare uh, for people who <laughs> like to <laughs> play, with old cars. play with old cars. Yeah, but we chase a lot of dust bunnies. Um, you know, being open to the public, uh, the public has a perception of wanting to see nice clean cars. So there's a lot of that sort of thing and, and uh, you know, people tend to bring in lots of dirty things with you when you open and close the doors. It'd be, like children. Yeah, that too, but <laughs> it'd be much nicer My in a hermetically sealed me. building. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, well, so and, there's that to do. And you guys aren't state funded, correct? No. No, no. so it's really just, I mean, it's, it's a lot of hard work from dedicated mm -hmm. people that are locals. It's, it's the, the, the love and kindness of our trustees uh, other people who uh, you know are you know, are very good to us. Of course, the the tickets you buy when you come into the building. But you know, I, I mean, being a five hundred one c three nonprofit educational historical foundation is is a wonderful thing. I mean, we provide. I like to think we provide something back to the community in education and aesthetics. Uh, but you know, unfortunately, we still have to keep the lights burning and so on and so forth. I mean, just because I mean the building's paid for, we own the dirt, we don't have to pay taxes so much but we still have to pay utilities water you know that sort of stuff and like I say some of us like to pay our rent and, and eat every once in a while so mm -hmm. you know, when you're here 40 hours or more a week um, you know there's some remuneration that comes back I know a lot of people in the museum industry uh, across the country and such and you know none of us are getting rich I'll tell you that we didn't get into this to be rich it's uh, it's it's a love for the artifact and it's for a history and, yeah, yeah it, it is it's nice to be able to play with toys as far as that's concerned. And I guess the big difference is I'd be playing with these things at home if I wasn't here playing with them, much to my wife's lament sometimes. But um, <laughs> Well, in, in this museum itself, it kind of has like this really long-standing history that goes along with the city of Reno. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I'm a Reno Knight myself, and I know a little bit about the story of Harrah's. And, mm -hmm. you know, you see Harrah's Hotel and, and things, but I generally don't know a lot about who he was and then what he has to do with this museum situation. Well, Bill Hara came to Reno from Southern California in, I think it was 1937, 
uh, was running a bingo game, uh, him and his father down on the, on the piers in Los Angeles. As gaming opened up in Nevada, unlimited gaming, um, he took the opportunity to bring his business up to Reno. We were the big city uh, back before World War II. So um, came up here and the, and the business grew and grew and, and finally to the 1960s, you know, five-star hotel casino in Reno and Lake Tahoe and, and uh, you know, a mammoth operation for its day. Um, remember that in the 1960s and 70s, gaming was restricted to Nevada as far as the United States is concerned. Uh, so there wasn't any casino gaming, you know, there was card halls and that sort of stuff, you know, s- you know small operations, but uh, the big games, that everybody, you know, slot machines and, and stuff like that, that everybody like was tables used to, craps tables, poker. nice games, that was all basically illegal outside of our borders. So it was very, very much a captive market. And, um, you know, of course, there were other things that played into that for the tourist trade and the divorce trade and so on in Reno's history. So di- we have our own divorce trade in Nevada. <laughs> we we did in the '30s, and such as the six-week quickie divorce was uh, was a big deal in the in, here in Nevada. I had never I've never even heard of that. Oh gosh, it's uh, another uh, the guest ranches and such. Yeah, see, your, your grandma remembers some of this as yeah. as a child, I'm sure. But uh, you know the um, yeah people would come here from all over, particularly the you know notoriety, Hollywood and you know, politicians and such as from all over the country. They would set up a six-week residency in Nevada, which was very short as compared to other states, and could get the quickie Nevada divorce. Uh, so, yeah, the photographs of uh, someone standing on the courthouse steps uh, here in town, you know, and throwing the ring into the river and all that good stuff, too. Uh, you know, most of that's all legend stuff, but the to set up the, the mm-hmm. residency, there were, you know, these dude ranches and guest ranches all around the area, all over the state. And people would move there and set up their post office to establish their six-week residency, and then they could file for the, the no-hassle divorce. A lot of Hollywood came through here in the 30s and 40s. So it was really kind of—I mean, I didn't really realize this, but Reno was actually pretty big when that's—I mean, that's the whole reason the Harry came up here. Comparatively so, yes. I mean, so you have this active tourist trade. We are the big city in the state. We're right on a major railroad and highway, uh, the east-west corridors on Highway, then Highway 40, now Highway 80. And of course, the Transcontinental Railroad comes through here, so there's stops there. And so, yeah, this is an important transportation hub. And then, of course, with the increase of air travel and so on and so forth, it becomes even more so. You know, and then there's that mountain just up the road here, so there's lots of skiing and outdoor activity, hunting and fishing and such as. So, lots of reasons to come to Northern Nevada and play the games. And bingo. And there you go. <laughs> so, there's a lot of people. Uh, you know, Fitzgerald and the Purple Gang and, and so, you know, um, Charlie Mapes and such as, you know, the, the pioneers of gaming in Reno and Bill Harrow was one of those. So he, his, like I said, grows and grows until finally in the 1970s, he's the first major gaming operation to be publicly traded on the stock exchange. And, uh, of course, he remains, you know, majority stockholder and such as through those, those years and to keep control of his own business. During that time, his gaming empire allowed him the fortune and the wherewithal to indulge in a passion for automobiles. And in 1948, he purchased a uh, little Maxwell that we still have in the collection, a 1911 Maxwell runabout, and a Model T. And those were his first toys as far as the, the collection goes. He restored the Maxwell thinking it was a 1907 automobile and uh, took it to a horse's carriage meet and was brutalized by the judges, I guess, just unmercifully because it was actually a 1911 automobile. And he made many mistakes, you know, with wrong parts and, and such as. And uh, being the competitive sort of individual he was, and, you know, from his you know, corporate enterprises and everything else, he vowed that he would never be caught like that again. And he started to amass this collection of cars and uh, literature and such as. We have one of the finest automotive libraries in the world, uh, right behind my shop there. So, um, you know, we have all this information and, and you know, the, on different obscure makes and such as, and, and these are all things that Mr. Herrick collected. Um, he grew his collection. We have automobiles in this collection that have been in the collection longer than they were in the outside world. I talked about the Maxwell he bought in 48. We have an American La France fire truck he bought from the city of Reno in 1949. It, uh, was purchased brand new in 1917 by the city 
it was purchased from the city by Mr. Hera, and it's, we still have it in the collection. You know, so you can see it's it's been part of us longer. There's a Pope Hartford that I have records of him driving on a tour in 1950. Uh, several other automobiles that were purchased in the 1950s and have been part of the collection still. Um, Hera Automobiles, when he passed in 1978, 1,420 automobiles in the collection at that time, making him one of the two largest collections in the world. And you were talking about how he did something very, very smart in order to kind of not have to pay certain taxes well, on these items. That's always the, the, the big complaint when Mr. Hera died and uh, Holiday Inns took over the collection and, and the Hotel Casino Empire was that Mr. Hera should have done something to preserve the collection. And Mr. Hera did. His collection was not only, he was, he was the stockholder in a collection. He was not the owner of the collection. He never owned a car collection. Um, the cars were all purchased under the umbrella of the Hotel Casino Empire. So that uh, when you look at the old titles, they are titled to Harris Club. And uh, so, you know, that got him out of personal taxes and things like that. And I've actually read a note in one of the files from Mr. Harris' accountant that says, Bill, it's not your car, don't say so. And, uh, you know, and so I assume it was the IRS that might be listening. I, I'm not certain, but you know, when you, you see these little papers on that sort of thing, you realize you know, that you know, he never really owned a car collection. And uh, even went so far as he, he was always a, a enjoyed large, powerful, fast cars. We have a Plymouth uh, satellite hardtop that has a 426 you know, factory Hemi in it that he used to drive around. And, and then later he donated it to the collection. Uh, there's a Chrysler 300, uh, a couple other automobiles that he used to drive. He, he used one of his Tuckers that he had bought in India as an everyday car for a while just to get a feel for the machine. He really did enjoy his collection. Um, his cars were at uh, major concours, Pebble Beach and such, all, you know, all over the country. He regularly had several Franklins that would go on the Franklin treks every year. We've got the little decals on the headlights on all our Franklins. Um, he was a member of many, many car clubs, and you know, personally and corporately. So uh, he, he was, you know, upward, he, had, he had upwards of 250 people at one time working just in his toy box. So he was dedicated to the collection and the idea of the collection and, and was actively working on a larger uh, dedicated operation, uh, Auto World, to the west of town when he passed. Unfortunately, that all changed uh, when management changed because it wasn't just his dream. It had to be a corporate dream. So he was working on this auto world. Was it mm -hmm. going to be kind of like his own personal museum for his items? Yeah, basically, okay. yeah. He and had a train, he had, he had all sorts of good stuff. I've, I've seen the, the artist conceptions of the, of the operation and uh, you know, it was going to be a large place. So it was going to be basically a destination resort sort of affair focused around the history of the automobile in the United States. Wow. And so, unfortunately, that fell through because he passed. Mm -hmm. And then, how did this museum become part of that? Well, as Holiday Inn, you know, rightfully, legally, took control of everything, uh, I am going to assume, since I was never at those board meetings, that it was their bookkeepers and so on that says, you know, we really don't want need 1,400 cars. Um, we're not in the car business, so we're going to let them go. And the cars basically were it was announced one day that everything's for sale. And there was a hue and cry in the local neighborhood and all over the hobby in general, you know, what's going to happen to this collection? So, you know, not being able to justify saving everything, they set aside 175 cars from the collection. And then, of course, they had to develop a foundation locally. A group of individuals set up the William Hare Automobile Foundation as to be a, a not-for-profit trust to hold those automobiles. So that gave Holiday Inns the opportunity to donate these cars tax deductibly uh, to this foundation. Uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, one of the tether, of course, that left this foundation with 175 cars and no home. So from that, they gathered everything and, and built this museum you're in today. And when did this museum open? Museum opened, uh, we celebrated our 30th anniversary here last year. So um, yeah, it was 88, 89 during construction. The foundation was working out of the old warehouse where Mr. Hera kept the cars uh, over in Sparks while this was being constructed. But this museum, the museum itself, the building we're in now has been standing, it'll be 31 years November. And my grandma actually remembers when she was a young girl seeing some of Hera's cars and Hera's collection. Yeah. I don't even remember. Well, somewhere in Reno, we went out to and yeah. saw them, yeah. And, well, oh, go ahead. The, the original 
the original was the ice house over in the Southern Pacific Yards behind John Squawks. And it grew from there, yeah. That was the original whole thing. Well, if you really want to go back, and I'm I'm not going to say you're going back that far, but, you know, you was at a parking garage here in town, and then it moved out to Sparks, and then finally moved back here into town. Um, There was several shops that Mr. Herrera had rented out at one time. And then there were warehouses all over town that carried the cars. At the, at the actual collection, there was maybe 800 cars on display, so that leaves us 600 roughly, you know, out there someplace that were stashed in different places all over, you know, warehouses such all over town, awaiting, you know, the, the blessing of a restoration in Mr. Harris' shops. Unfortunately, time ran out, and not all of those things happened. Well, and you guys have a really amazing thing going on here where all of these cars look like they're on streets and you have storefronts and movie fronts and we're actually in a podcasting studio that's disguised out front as a photo shop. Mm -hmm. And someone was telling me that you guys were one of the first museums in the country to really display cars in that manner. At that time, yes. It was kind of a, um, I would say, novel or or, approach to that sort of thing. Mr. Hare, of course, you know, had his cars all lined up in warehousing and that was kind of the status for a car museum. It was a large building with cars all parked in neat little rows. And of course, you know, the, the idea is you can display more automobiles, you know, in, you know, more efficiently that way. But it doesn't give you the context. Yeah, it's not as aesthetic. Really. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and so when the, they started planning this museum out, they decided to go into this uh, and put, try and place the automobiles more in context, more in a area. So we have a, the, you know, we're sitting on the 30th street right now. There's a turn-of-the-century street that connects the two, 50th Street with a tract house and a service station and such as. And so, uh, you know, trying to get that backdrop so that, you know, you can come in and see the automobile much the way you would have when it was just on the streets. Well, and you have a few really cool cars that are actually photo cars that you can sit in and take pictures of too, mm-hmm. correct? Which we, we have a couple of Model Ts that we're working on with that, you know, so that people can uh, sit in them and get a photograph, you know. Grandma and I are going to get a photo of that. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of a. I can't let you play with everything. <laughs> Do all these cars run? Most of them. Most of them will run. I've got a couple that are out there with long-standing mechanical issues. They're just—it's a matter of uh, budget and time as far as finding the bits and pieces for them and the amount of pieces that are missing. Um, you know, that sort of thing. There are some pretty rare parts that well, I suppose I could get remanufactured, but first I have to have a copy of something. You know, to to make to remanufacture from, and that's mm-hmm. kind of where the holdup is on two or three machines. A lot of it's time uh, to get through two hundred plus automobiles that we have in the collection now, mm-hmm. and uh, do the maintenance and all required to to get them up and functional again. Some of them take more maintenance than others. Um, steam cars and that sort of thing are, are you know a little, little more problematic on those issues. But uh, I've got a couple of mechanical issues that are problematic and but I've got others that I could you know get fired up in a day or so sometimes I have to prove that you know if we get something that's a rush job or something along that line so I like to try and put them away um, clean dry and, and serviceable and uh, so that they will come back out uh, with as few possible problems as we can get away with so yeah Kind of as a side story, um, the very first car that I had ever driven when I was a young girl was actually a 1914 Model T Ford. Oh, excellent. And what had happened was there was a large group of them that, you know, they came together and they would drive different places in a kind of a caravan. Sure. And they were doing their caravan through Tonopah, Nevada. Mm -hmm. And I was with my father, and we had gone to go grocery shopping. We saw these really amazing cars. So he took me around, we looked at them all, and there was a really friendly gentleman um, an older gentleman, and he asked me if I wanted to ride in the car. And thankfully, my mom wasn't there, or there's no way she would have let me get into a car with a strange man. But oh, my dad, yeah. my dad totally let me. Yeah. <laughs> and so I got to sit in the car, and we were driving around, and he drove me around the parking lot, and then he kind of just looks over and he goes, do you do you want to drive it? And I was like, of course. Yeah. So he actually let me pop in the driver's seat, and I got to pull the horn lever mm-hmm. yeah. and drive around the uh, the parking lot. And I came around the corner, and my dad and he looked a panic on his face, just yeah. in case I crashed this really <laughs> antique <laughs> expensive vehicle but it was really cool and he even gave me a little commemorative pin oh, yeah. for the occasion it was really wonderful so. Porsche's, Porsche's Carriage Club has those little pins that I rode in a brass car and that sort of stuff and it it behooves us as collectors and, and promoters of the hobby to promote young people into the automobile so the idea that this gentleman let you you know, learn how to dance on the pedals of a Model T is, is really quite commendable. Yeah, and it was a really memorable moment for me and, as a young girl, too. As it should be, yes. Yes, it was know. wonderful. And there's lots of homeless Model Ts out there looking for a loving parent right now. 
Oh. <laughs> I will gladly do that whenever I yeah. have a little bit more financial oh, stability. It's it's not as not as terrible as one might think on some of the machines at the moment, particularly earlier cars, because people are less familiar with them. Mm-hmm. And a Model T can be kind of daunting, though, with 15 million of them built during when Henry was building them. I mean, they were quite popular, very ubiquitous. Everybody has had a connection with a Model T somewhere in their life. Um, but now uh, people look at them. There's no gear shift. There's no gas pedal, and it's it's kind of a mystery. There's no AC. Yeah, like, there's what no am I supposed AC. to do here? I can't turn on the radio. <laughs> My Bluetooth doesn't work. You know that sort of thing. My so it's car. yeah. Well, it's it's the idea of an old car for me is is a time machine that's fueled by gasoline and imagination. And though my, I myself cannot currently do a Model T Ford, at some point I would love to. But you do have quite a few here, <laughs> and you also have a ton of other really amazing items. Oh, yeah. But I know that you brought two that you really wanted to talk about that might be the star. Are they the stars <laughs> of the museum, or? Well, they're all stars. You know, which which you, which of your children do you love the best? Um, Luckily for me, I was the only child. So well, there you go. So, so you're spoiled. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, around here, there's 220 kids all demanding attention and such <laughs> as, and, and um, I do tend to go more towards older automobiles. And, and you know, I, I, I've had the Bear, the Stutz Bearcat, and the Mercer Race about out, and they're they're fun machines to drive. You know, the sports car of a hundred years ago and such. And, and of course, several of the Model Ts, you know, and they're just a, a different exercise. The more fun most that I have on the Model T is trying to teach people how to drive them. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, which pedal to push and how to do that, and it it gets you know it can be very confusing until you're used to it, as as you might be able to attest if you reach back far enough to to remember those days. But uh, you know, I don't. It's yeah. You, know, you know, pick pick your favorites. Probably one of the more interesting cars I've had to. I've, had the privilege of getting out would be our 1906 Adams Farwell and it's one of those machines that Mr. Harrow got that's it's the only one of its kind we know to exist they were built in Dubuque Iowa by the Adams Manufacturing Company which is still in business today in the same same buildings there in Dubuque Uh, they deal in machine parts and iron parts and stuff like that much as they did at the close of the 19th century but they hired this fellow by the name of Faye Oliver Farwell and uh he, was, he held many patents. He was a kind of a mechanical genius. And he was enthused with the idea of these uh, rotary engines. And this is not the thing you would find in, a, in the Japanese Wankel oil machines. A rotary engine at the turn of the last century was basically a, a round piston engine like you'd find most people would be familiar with on the front of an airplane. And the trick is that the crankshaft is held stationary and the engine itself will rotate around the crankshaft. So if you can imagine opening the hood of your car and seeing the entire engine spinning around inside there. This is how the atoms works. And uh, Faye Farwell saw this, uh, an experimental unit on the back, uh, it was mounted in the wheel of a motorcycle. And it intrigued him that this thing you know, would sit inside the wheel and, and propel the machine. And for obvious reasons, you can see there's difficulties with that. But you know, in an automobile, it's different. So he experimented with these machines, uh, these rotary engines, we would make wooden models with the cooling fins and everything, and he would mount them in drill presses, and he would spin them around. He'd coat them with oil, and he'd spin them in a drill press and then throw flour at them so he could see how the, the air currents whirled around the engine for cooling. And he finally got a pattern that he liked, and he built a, a three-cylinder and a five-cylinder machine, and he mounted them in the back of these, these uh, Adams automobiles. And they sit right under the seat. So when you open up the back hatch of the machine, the engine is whirling around like a Cuisinart you know, right underneath your seat. And uh, they're fascinating little machines to operate, very simple. Uh, one of the few horseless carriage automobiles you can hand crank from the driver's position. You don't have to get out to actually operate the machine. When, have, you, when you say hand crank, so were you having to crank it the entire time that it was moving or was the hand crank just to get it started? Hand crank is just to start, just like when you turn the key on in your automobile, you, know, the, you engage an electric motor. Unfortunately, they didn't have electric motors small enough at the beginning of the automotive age. So um, they would use these, you know, basically as a hand crank that mounted right in the front of the machine or across the side. A lot of automobiles, like the Adams, Fords, Cadillacs and such, had the engines mounted underneath the machine, a little single-cylinder, two-cylinder machines. You'd stand alongside of it, and you'd actually have to turn it over until it caught hold. There's a, a finesse to it that we could go through all the little steps on how to crank these machines safely, you know, so you don't get your arm broken, that sort of stuff. There's a 
a legend that uh, uh, that the there was a, a gentleman who broke his arm cran cranking a car and got blood poisoning and it killed him. We've never been able to come up with a corroborating you know newspaper story that says Joe Blow died of blood poisoning that sort of thing. But it was his friend was. Uh, um, oh, was it, no, it wasn't Leland. It was another one of the engineers at the time at General Motors. And he, uh, from that incident, supposedly decided to, you know, we need to do this a safer way. So he figured out a way to make a motor small enough that would fit in the automobile, an electric motor, that you could engage and that would crank the car over and eliminate you having to do that. And that's another one of those commemorative moments that were introduced in 1913 on the Cadillac four-cylinder automobile as a self-starting car. And you turned on a switch and you pulled a lever and the motor started to spin and you engaged that into the engine. The main engine turned over when it fired, you were underway. And suddenly you're eliminated from having to hand crank that automobile, which for the little Model T that you drove as a little 20 horse four cylinder is not a spectacular feat of, of strength, but it does take a certain finesse. But for bigger cars, you know, being up there 40, 50, 60, 90 horse machines, great big machines, suddenly becomes kind of a dangerous thing to have to do, you know, to that finesse and that, but basically the strength it takes to lift and turn that giant engine, you know, not so much the compression, but the, just the sheer weight of the machine mm -hmm. in such a way that it'll fire and run. So the electric starter changes everything and suddenly you don't need a, a large burly individual to start your car. Anybody that can push a button can run a machine. And like I say, it's one of those moments Anybody slight of stature, women, smaller individuals of sorts, usually would be relegated to a smaller car. The electric car was considered the automobile of women and doctors because they were always available. I mean, you unplugged them, turned a switch, and you're gone. You know, so you know if you consider style of the times in the in the Edwardian age and such in the early part of the 20th century. Women's clothing were not conducive to the physical efforts involved in handling a dirty machine. But an electric car, if you were a, a family of means, um, the, the little woman could have an electric car, she could unplug that machine and turn that switch and she was off in the town. If they got one with solid wheels, she never had to worry about changing tires or anything like that. And she could you know, conduct her, her rounds mm -hmm. during the day with, without the assistance of a man to crank that damn machine. So it, there again, it changes the world again. Yeah. So this vehicle that you, I mean, it, it spun inside. Oh yes, backdoor Adams, yes. So what, why? Was it just because it was a cool thing that they saw and they're like, well, we want to try to make this? Or was there more of a purpose of having well, there's several, spinning? There's several ideas. But I mean, it provides its own cooling is what's really neat. It doesn't have to have a fan. So you're, you're whirling the machine through its, the air. So therefore it dissipates its own heat, that sort of thing. It also acts as a flywheel. So you don't have that extraneous piece of iron hanging on the back of the machine that balances the equipment back out. It was just another way to do it. They were very popular. Legend has it that the folks from Lerone and Nome in uh, France came over to see Faye Farwell's design. And they were very popular in aircraft uh, during the Great War in fighter planes and such. They would rotate the engine. And they had another way of doing it. Faye Farwell vented the, the mixed fuel down through the center of the engine and out through channels at the top of the cylinders. On the aircraft versions, the mixed fuel, you know, come from a carburetor, was mixed into the crankcase of the engine, and the valves were actually in the top of the piston. So as the, as the piston came down, it would move the, fuel, the, the explosive mix into the chamber and then compress it and burn it. It's a very neat idea. It would give the, the aircraft, like say, acting as gyro, would turn better in one direction than the other and things like that. You know, they were, they were fascinating little machines. It's slung off oil, it, you know, they're nasty. <laughs> as, as old things go, you know, and people, I see people watching the atoms from a bit of a distance, you know, because it'll fling little droplets of oil around and stuff like that. They're not terribly clean by today's standards, but it is, it is a quiet and efficient machine. It develops about 50 horsepower. It'll pull the machine nicely. It's uh, contracting band, much as your, your Model T experience, so you don't have clutches and gear shifts to work with, but it's not on the floor, it's on a hand control at the top. There's two tillers, so you push the tiller one direction and it pulls a band tight on the transmission, much as a modern automatic would do, and the car moves forward and moves backward. The other fun thing about the Adams Farwell is it's considered, uh, Faye Farwell called it a convertible, 
and not because the top folded up in a modern convertible, but it was because he could convert it from a two-passenger automobile to a five-passenger automobile by opening the front hatch and the Stanhope body, removing this control mechanism from the floors and installing it in the front so you could drive it from the front or the back of the car. Oh, wow. You know, it's a, it was a very, it's a very simple operation. You know, the pedals just lift out of the floor and the steering column, you undo a collar bolt and you just lift it up. You drop it in the hole in the front, you, cl- you know, close it back down, and you're ready to go. Why didn't this take off? Why was there only one made? Well, there were, they made, I suppose, I'm told they made about 50 to 60 automobiles during the span of production. And they went into like from 1903, all the way up through 13. And we have photographs of, of several automobiles in the local police department there in Dubuque and, and at different operations. Um, they just never took off. I, and I'm, so the one that you have here, it's the only one that's still in existence. It's the only one known to exist. Legend has it that Henry Ford at one time offered $20,000 to anyone who could find him a, 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 an Adams Farwell automobile. Mm-hmm. Um, our particular car was, of course, in existence in that time, but it was tucked away in another collection. So why this individual didn't take Henry up on this, I couldn't tell you. Um, when Mr. Hara got it from uh, Henry Austin Clark in Long Island, it was rough. It needed a complete restoration, so the vehicle we have here had gone through the shops and, and run from there. It would be a pity. I looked at drawings and such of the later Adams Farwell machines, and there are certain advantages to those and improvements and such as. They would be fascinating cars, and it would be fun to find one someday. But to our knowledge, this is the only automobile in existence. We have a spare engine, and the Smithsonian Air and Space has an Adams Farwell engine that was used in a tethered helicopter experiment. Um, you know, a gentleman whose name escapes me right now was building a, you know, experimenting with helicopters at the same time, and he used the Adams engine because of its smooth running characteristics. So they have an engine sitting on display at the Air and Space in downtown D.C. But they, they don't have, have a car. But they don't have a car, and we have two engines. So that's far as I know, that is all there is left of the Adams Farwell automobile enterprises. Wow, that's pretty incredible. Though the like I say the company still exists. Wow. You know, they just. Like so many others, they just decided to get out of the transportation industry and go on to things that were more profitable for them. And obviously, it worked for Adams. Yeah, it worked yeah. out. They're still around. Yeah, they're still there. Mm-hmm. Faye Farwell went on to other inventions and other companies, and it was a successful individual. I say he held, I don't know, something like 50 patents or something along that line. You know, he was, he was a very bright individual. Just went on to other things. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm kind of curious how you're going to top that one. Well, the topping that one, I don't know anything tops anything like that, but probably the the star in our collection is the 1907 Thomas uh, Model 35 Flyer. It's um, very rare and exotic. It's a it's a 60 horse touring car, four cylinder, 570 cubic inches. Um, extremely valuable as far as the antique car community goes. Any any of the Thomas machines, they're big, they're strong, they're fast. People love the silly things. Uh, they didn't survive very well, as with the Adams. Um, but they're probably, uh, I heard one gentleman say maybe 50-odd examples of Thomas automobiles left in the world. Um, company that was uh, in existence from about 1900 through 1913, 14, depending on when the last couple, three were manufactured. But our particular 1907 was uh, used by the factory and entered in the New York to Paris automobile race in 1908. Um, now, some of you are probably familiar with the old Tony Curtis movie, The Great Race, which is a spoof of the actual race that happened in 1908, where six automobiles gathered in Times Square in New York City. Uh, the Paris, uh, well, new, the race was sponsored by the New York Times and La Matin, a Paris newspaper, and the whole idea was to sell newspapers to follow the race. So they promoted this. They got six automobiles to enter. They had uh, three French automobiles, one Italian, one German, and one American entry, R. Thomas. The race started on Valentine's Day of 1908. They left New York and immediately drove into a blinding blizzard and uh, went through Albany and across New York to Buffalo, around the Great Lakes to Chicago, and then south into the the, the middle of the country, basically following the Transcontinental Railroad because there is no service station network in 1908. They followed the railroads and they could ship fuel and tires and parts along the railroad route. 
This yeah. was a huge race to sell newspapers. Well, yeah, but yeah, the road racing, you know, without getting too much into the history of that, that was it was flourishing in, in Europe. They would have uh, Paris, Vienna, Paris, Madrid, you know, Rome, all sorts of places. And the idea was that you know you would buy the paper to follow the race yeah. and that sort of thing. They quickly found out that uh, they were losing a lot of people because they'd stand by the roadside to watch the race go by. Of course, once the racers went by, it was all done. You know, they weren't going to come back. So um, that was kind of short-lived. And eventually the idea was, you know, if we close this thing up, we can sell tickets. And in 1911, you get things like the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Um, basically, Indianapolis Motor Speedway is fascinating. We're all familiar with it. We have, you know, they have a 500-mile race there every Memorial Day. But it was, when built and still is, the largest sporting venue in the world. Wow. Yeah, and it's, you know, all they do is race cars there. Funny stuff. But uh, back to 1908, they, uh, they went out across the middle of America, following the railroads. At, one, at points, they actually rode on the tracks because uh, there was no roads or, you know, to cross over that sort of thing. Um, I say tires and fuel and oil tires at the time were pretty crappy by modern standards. You could, you know, run a tire out in three to 500 miles under normal conditions. So they're constantly changing tires and maintaining these machines. It was to prove, essentially to prove, or to sell papers, but in, in the bigger scope, it proved the automobile. They ended up crossing, by the time they got to San Francisco, they were down to four cars. The Sasserine ended in New York, and um, I believe it was one of the other, I not remember which one it was, uh, you know, died in the middle of the country, <laughs> you know, in the, of the United States. Schuster and, he, and the Thomas, they get to San Francisco, and, you know, happily they have an agency there, and they had to do... They did the only thing. They had to put a new transmission in it. He basically rebuilt the transmission in the middle of Nevada from parts they borrowed off another guy's car in uh, Goldfield. And, uh, you Goldfield. Know, they, Goldfield, yeah. Was, Thomas was a it was an expensive car, and important people had them. And Schuster, the one thing he was, he was the factory mechanic, and he knew where all the cars had gone. So when they broke the transmission in a wash out in the middle of Nevada. He knew there was another one in Goldfield. All he had to do to get to Goldfield, oh, and then convince the doctor, I need to borrow your transmission. Don't trust me, we'll send you a new one. Um, and he did. The guy let him do it, let him tear the car down there in, 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 his, in his house and haul the bits and pieces out into the middle of Nevada and put this car back together. They got to San Francisco, and the idea was they were going to take a boat up to Valdez, Alaska, and then they were going to drive across the frozen Bering Sea you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a driving, it's an automobile race. So they get all the way to Valdez, and they get on the docks, and the gentleman, mayor of the town, comes out and says, you know, we've had a record snowfall this year. We can't get dog sleds out of town. It's 10, 12 feet deep or something like that. So Schuster surveys the situation, and being a, a, a tough little German fellow, he decides that uh, he can break this car down into 600-pound increments, and that's the maximum a dog sled will carry. So if he hires, I can't remember how many dog sleds it was, he can have this car hauled all the way to the ice flow, and then he will reassemble it and drive it across. Well, then nobody had introduced him to pack ice. You know, they were they were thinking frozen lake when they when the promoters put this together. Well, it's the, the ice out on the ocean is not like that. It's mountainous. It's awful, and it's just physically impossible for the automobiles at the time. So they they. Decided to change, of course, and the race promoters, my God, it's going to be $10,000 per car for the rest, for all the cars to get over to, you know, through this mess of Alaska. Shipped him back down to Seattle, put him on a boat to Japan. So they become the first automobile to drive across Japan. And they pick up a ship on the other side and they go to Siberia and um, continue the race from there. By the time they get there set up, they're down to three cars, the German, an Italian, and our, our Thomas. They take off following the Trans-Siberian Railway. And uh, it's, you know, it's still, they say they started in February. This is still the end of winter, melting snow, stuff like that. Their car, cars are mired in mud. According to Jeff Ball, uh, there's stories of horses actually drowning, you know, getting off the road in the mud and the crap around there. You know, it's just awful. Because there are no highways. Mm -hmm. And the only thing we can do is follow that railroad because the railroad gives us access to supplies. It also gives us a telegraph. So we have communication. Continued on across Siberia. They broke a transmission again. They had to, uh, at one point, their, their 
They, they ran out of, they've developed a crack in the case. They've run out of oil for the transmission. They're packing it with wagon grease and whatever they can find in rail yards and such like that. Legend has it at one point they had actually ran out of all petroleum products and they packed it with animal fat from a slaughterhouse to try and lubricate the gears and keep this machine going. So you can imagine as we're coming through spring now what that must have smelled like. Um, finally, it breaks irreparably. Well, Schuster has already used that telegraph and wired Buffalo. says, I need a transmission. Well, they all, here they are in Siberia. Buffalo's over here. They ship a transmission across the Atlantic into Europe and it takes the train, and now they're trying to get this train to find the car stuck in the middle of Siberia someplace. Meanwhile, George Montgomery, another passenger, or actually another factory rep from Thomas, has got nothing to do while he's watching the car. Schuster goes out to find the transmission. He goes one direction. Hans goes another direction. They're trying to find the train that has this transmission on board and get it to the car. Montgomery, you know, George Montgomery is sitting on the car. He takes bits and pieces that he has in his toolbox and such as, and he hand makes the teeth into the gears and puts them all back together, gets the car reassembled, and proceeds to drive it farther down the road to catch up with the guys of the tranny. Finally, when it goes this time, it's all done, but by this time they've found the new gearbox and they've installed that. He had to change not just tires and maintain it, but springs and gear housings and transmissions, and at one point they had to fix a, a broken mount on the engine. The, uh, they finally, make it all the way to Paris. Uh, they're just behind the German car the whole way uh, from that point on. And the Germans are picking up all the, the day money and the, the fancy meals and such, and the Thomas guys are kind of the other half. You know, it's the, the second, second place car, big deal. Um, they finally get to the outskirts of Paris. They can see the Eiffel Tower, and Jeff Maul tells the story of how the car is stopped by a gendarme. And uh, no pass, he says. So Schuster in his English-German is trying to explain to a, Par a Parisian policeman you know, what he's doing and why, and he's come 13,000 miles around the world, and I can see the finish line, and you're not going to let me pass. And he says, oh, he says, you've got to have two functional headlights to enter the city. And they'd hit a bird outside of Moscow and smashed one of the headlights. So they don't have two functioning headlights, and he's not going to get to enter Paris. The argument proceeds for a bit, and finally a fellow on a bicycle says, you know, I have a headlight on my bicycle. If you can put that on your car, I'll let you have it. And the gendarme, okay, that'll work. You'll have two lights, right? Well, then, of course, nobody's got wrenches to get the, the headlight off the bicycle. Legend has it that they eventually throw the bicycle up over the hood of the Thomas and tie it down, and that's how they finish the race, was the bicycle as their second headlight. Well, so, so did they come in second? Wow, well, this is where it gets tricky. They are the only car to make it all the way to Alaska. All the other cars were behind them at that time. So while they're going to Alaska, everybody else is sitting down in Seattle as well. What are we going to do now? So they actually get bonus points for going to Alaska, which are credited to like 28 days. By the time they get back down and ship across to Japan, when the German car gets ahead of them, they win the race by five days, but the Thomas is credited because it went to Alaska and the judges declare the Thomas the winner of the race. I had no idea about this story, oh, and this is incredible. <laughs> and that's like the Reader's Digest version, because they, like I said, they blew the tranny twice, they stripped shafts, they, you know, Schuster was constantly overhauling this car, to the point that later on in life, George Schuster would look at the automobile and declare that this wasn't his car because he just didn't feel there was enough of the automobile he drove around the world left to be his car. And it wasn't until Mr. Hara brought him to Reno after he bought the car, and he brought Schuster out. You know, Schuster is serendipitous, I suppose. Uh, Schuster's only 90 years old at the time. He's the only surviving participant of the race at, by this time. So Bill Hara flies him out from New York with his son, and, and they look at the car. He says, yeah, I've seen this car before, and I don't think it's my car. He says, all right, so we're going we're gonna, to, tomorrow morning, I want you to take you down to the shop. We're going to take this automobile apart one piece at a time, and we're going to have you go over every inch of the automobile. And we have a stack of 8x10s in the library with little George and Bill and the mechanics, and they're taking this car down all the way down to a bare frame. And they stripped it right down to a bare chassis frame sitting on two sawhorses. And as they did that, as they peeled back the layers of the onion, Schuster finally realizes, oh yeah, I made that repair here, and there's a repair I made there, and such as, and yeah, this is the car I drove around the world. 
See, the car didn't sit on its laurels when it came back to the States. You know, it come back and, comes back in triumph, goes out to Oyster Bay, and Theodore Roosevelt rides in the car, and it's, it's a big deal. And, of course, then the Thomas Company exhausted that publicity, and they were gone five years later. They, you know, exactly, they just exasperated. They did, did everything that sold off. The car was purchased by a man named Finnegan, who was a newspaper magnate there in Buffalo, and he bought the car and the 1,600-pound trophy that goes with it that we still have, and he puts it in a, in a garage or his house, and he sits on it. And when after his passing, it's purchased by the DuPont family, and it sits in their warehouse in Wilmington for a number of years. After the war, it's purchased by a man by the name of Austin Clark, and he takes it to his Long Island Automobile Museum there in, in New York. And when he decides to thin out his collection in 1964 is when Mr. Hera goes out and buys it at auction and brings it back to Reno. And he gets George Schuster involved again, and they finally decide that this is authenticated, this is the car. He goes ahead and restores it. And this is the, 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 the part about Mr. Hera. Most restorations then, today, and so on and so forth are a kind of an imagination of what the best the automobile could be. We tend to over-restore. So they're bright and shiny and all the obscure little places and such like that. They really are works of art. Uh, but they're not what was produced so much. Why, why in the museum business we value the original car over the restored car? Because the original car is is the original piece. You know, you, how much would the Mona Lisa be worth if you repainted her? That sort of thing. So if you can get a fine example of an unrestored car, that is historically more value than a pristine restored car. So Mr. Harris got this car that, like I say, it didn't sit on its laurels after it passed through all these hands. Before that, it went on another cross-country race in 1909. They used it as a promotion for the factory. They drove it from New York to Seattle and back. Yeah. But by then, it's a three-year-old Thomas. I mean, who cares? <laughs> it's, it's old news. It's old news, yeah. But it was fun that the, the winner of the New York to Paris race was in this. It was the opening of the, um, excuse me, the Yukon Pan American Exposition in Seattle. So it drew, led a race out there, which was won by a Model T Ford, uh, you know, first year Model T. And um, so, but you know, we've got pictures of George Montgomery driving the car across America again. So the maintenance and all required, the upkeep, the, the additions and modifications that the factory made were some of the reasons that George Schuster wasn't liking the car. So Mr. Harrow, when he starts a restoration, they have George Schuster you know, to mark out this is a right and this is wrong and, and that sort of thing. They go through all the photographs and everything. And he decides he's going to restore this car not to its as new or start of race condition, bright and shiny and clean, but to that day of victory in 1908 when they crossed under the, the uh, Eiffel Tower. So they restore the car with all its nicks and dents and you'll see there's initials carved in it and stuff like that. And Schuster talks about how people would come out at night and scratch your initials in the automobile as it was going around the world. It's kind of something they'd set up, little graffiti things and things like that. And all the bumps and bruises that George put there to maintain the automobile have all been maintained. And they even went so far as to take this, you know, have, you know they've done the restoration, they've, they've, you know, they got in there, they put sandpaper on their sleeves and stuff like that to wear the seats in and they moved things around and they, were, they put broken springs back in and all that sort of stuff. So it looked like it had been through it. It's been around the world 13,000 miles and that, that point. But it's still just a, a clean, kind of a worn restoration. So they took it out into the desert one winter day and they drove it in circles for most of a day. So that the sagebrush and everything, yeah, that you just knock the edge off of it yeah. and get it, get some dirt into it and that sort of thing. And that's the car he presents to George when they fly him back out as this worn looking, as close as we can replicate to that moment of victory. You know, and that car from photographs and from George's recollections. And that's the automobile we maintain today. And it still runs and drives. It's a, you know, it's a hand crank machine. It's one of those little more challenging machines that, you know, that, all this, uh, what, 250 pound flywheel, 570 inches. It's, it's a monster to get pulled over. And it's slapped me in the back of the hand a couple of times. It's, it, it has attitude. But I've gotten to drive the car and um, uh, probably the, one of the better better drives I took was Allentown, Pennsylvania when we did it to when it was recognized as a national historical landmark. We had to take it to Allentown to get its photographs and, and its authenticity and, and all of its, you know, basically benchmark the artifact. And one of the things they did is uh, Nicola Bulgari has this kind of a private little tr 
track, if you will, in his compound there. And we got to drive the car around the track and they could follow me with a drone and, and other things like that and get films of the automobile actually functioning. And that's part of the podcast is he's actually going to take Grandma and I and ride in that car, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. Just let me, <laughs> let me get it. Let me, let me get it out. <laughs> the perks of the podcast. So I do have a few questions sure. about the spectacular race. Yeah. So all in all, how long was the race? Well, it started, like I say, uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day. It uh, ended in August, 1st of August, for the German and the, and the American car. We haven't talked about the Italians, the third place car. And as much as an, as much as, as an arduous task as it is for the Americans and the Germans, the, the German protists who actually crossed the finish line first, imagine their disappointment when the judges says, no, no, it's the guys that came a week later. There's still that third car, the, the Italian, the Italia. And um, it is way behind. The, not only are they facing mechanical issues and stuff like that, at one point they claimed that they were sabotaged in, uh, in Salt Lake City. Um, they, ah, you know, things Salt Lake City. Yeah, somebody dropped a nail in the differential is what they said. Things ah. like that. You know. But you know, they, 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 did cross. They, they, they had their issues. Scafaggio was the guy's name. And uh, wrote a nice big book on it. And you can find that somewhere on the, you know, the great on the, his his version of the Great Race. Everybody wrote books. Schuster's is a little know, bitty I book. Scafaggio and the, and Copen, the German uh, captain, you know, were big thick of volumes. I know the the Italian book is translated in English. Anyway, so anyway, the Italians, of course, everybody lands in Erkust and starts across there. Well, the Italians are a little bit behind. There was a there was an issue with fuel when they got off in, uh, in Siberia. Everybody starts, you know, they want to fill up their tanks and such as. Well, this fellow, um, it was one of the French guys, his name escapes me right now. His family basically told him that if you keep running a car in this race, we'll disinherit you. So he had to sell his car, and so they lost the fourth car. But he is, he wants to continue the race, so he buys up all the fuel in town, all the motor fuel. And he says, I'm not giving anybody a drop of fuel unless I get a ride on the car. And he's not going to ride with the Germans because the French one won't ride with the German team. So it's got to be the Italians and the Americans. And he's got all the gas. Well, Schuster finds a little a German shopkeeper there in town. He, they, they can speak the language. And he finally convinces him to give him enough fuel to get to the next city, to the next fuel dump. And he beats feet out of town and leaves them all behind. And the Frenchman eventually has to take the railroad and uh, that sort of thing. But the Italians, when they finally get their act together, they're behind everybody. Well, they get a first, eventually they're stopped by the, remember this is pre-Great War Imperial Russia. They are stopped by the Russian military and accused of espionage. And they lined up, lined up in jail for a week or so. And finally through negotiations and so on and so forth, they're freed and off they go again. He's a cantankerous guy, this Scafaggio, he won't quit. And a few days later, they get into another town, a horse spooks, a child is run over and killed. Now they're up on manslaughter charges, and they cool their heels in another Siberian jail for a while. You can imagine the comfort level of all this sort of foolishness. Once again, negotiations, and they're released, and off they go again. They do not finish the race until October. But they never but gave they, up. They never quit. They never quit. They did finish the race. But, you know, for all the exasperation the other two crews kept, the Italian crew... They, they, they put up with it all, and they, and they did finish the race. So it's, it, was, it was an adventure, uh, men and machine uh, in a changing world, uh, you know, the Wild West only around the world. It's something that they tried to recreate at the centennial of, of the race in, in 2008, and politically it was just impossible to get routes to bring any number of cars and private individuals through that part of the world. They finally did get permission to do those routes through China, Manchuria, that sort of stuff uh, a few years later. And Jeff Ball, who was George Schuster's uh, great-grandson, uh, did, a, did uh, and get involved in that. And he's a big promoter of it. He, does, he likes to do a kind of a Chautauqua thing uh, on the stories his grandfather used to tell on a race. And a very interesting fellow to listen to. That would be, be another great podcast. Yeah. It's been done a couple of times, I think, in different things on the race, as obscure as it might be. Everybody knows about... Wilbur Noble Wright and uh, Spirit of St. Louis and all that sort of stuff, but nobody knows about George Schuster, you know, traveling around the world in an open automobile in the middle of winter. What? Yeah. So what was the prize when when they did finish the race for the winners? What was the prize? <laughs> E.R. Thomas said it cost him $100,000 to run that race, and the prize was well, almost nothing. Schuster was supposed to get a $1,000 <laughs> bonus, 
and <laughs> ER said he couldn't afford to pay him, but he did double his salary, and him and George Montgomery, and so during the race, they got their salaries were doubled, and all that was paid for. The uh, Automobile Club gave Schuster a flag and said if he'd return it, you know, he was supposed to have it on the car, and if he would return it at the end of the race, they'd give him a bonus. Um, he returned the flag and gave it to them, and eventually he got the flag back. He, but that was, had, bonus that, that was basically his bonus. He got the flag back. That flag, George took it and had it signed by participants and people all around the world. And oh. we have that flag in our library. Oh, it was one of those one of those pieces that we got from Mr. Schuster. Oh, wow. So a couple of personal items that, that George gave Mr. Harrow, and uh, you know, once he you know to acknowledge you know that this was his and it's probably his place in history. Schuster. Finished out his career at Thomas, you know, within the next couple of years, and he went on to become a Dodge dealer there in New York and lived a very comfortable life and raised a family and, and grandchildren and so on and so forth. He uh, lived to be almost 100 years old wow. before he passed. Good fellow. Uh, you know, just, uh, you know, when you see pictures of him and Bill Harrow, he's, you know, all of five foot. He was just a little guy. But, uh, you know, must have been a tenacious individual to, to hang on that. I figure he leaves New York in a blizzard. And you know, Schuster was the guy, they had a fellow by the name of uh, Montague Roberts, who was an important race driver at the time, and they hired him to drive the American car. And so Schuster was basically the writing mechanic, and then there was a newspaper man on the board to, to document everything. So then they leave New York, Schuster's there, he's the one that's going to change the tires and check the fluids and all that stuff. All Roberts has got to do is point the car down the road, he's the face man. He has to leave the car by Buffalo because he has other engagements. And that leaves Schuster in charge of the automobile. I figured George was the first man up in the morning because there again, we don't have antifreeze and things like that. So the car has to be drained out at night. It has to have all the muck and the, and the mud and everything washed off of it because that would freeze at night in the barns and such they were carrying them in and become these great big rocks basically hauling around the car. So he had to clean the car, drain the fluids, check everything all out. And the next morning he had to go back in refill all the fluids, warm the car up, you know, hand crank it in the freezing mornings and make sure it was all ready to go. I, I see many nights sitting around patching inner tubes and things like that while Montgomery Roberts is in having the, the steak dinners and you know, the pats on the back and all that other good stuff. Later on, that was all Schuster, but he says, you know, they talk about when they got in Siberia, the Germans were taking the headlines because they were the first cars to come through. And in many parts of the world, these were the first automobiles, like Japan. That is the first automobile to cross Japan. Yeah, you know, it's it's you know, fascinating. You know, people have never seen cars, and they're having this race, you know, come through the outback of uh, that that part of Russia and such. You know, and then, you know, six eight years later, the world has all changed. Mm -hmm. the world War, the Iron Curtain basically falls. You know, the, the, of course, the Russian Revolution and so on and so forth. And uh, you know, everything, the cosmo, the cosmo, cosmation of the world, cosmopolitan world, whatever. You know, it's it's all different, and we're never able to recreate that. That whole event. I, I honestly can't imagine a greater adventure, really. Thank you so much. And that story, <laughs> honestly, that story was so un unsuspected for me. I did not know that that was coming. And it was one of the coolest stories. Well, I hope that works out for you. Oh, no, that's definitely. <laughs> no, that was really, thank you so much for being cool. part of the podcast and for sure. sharing the museum. Yeah.